Welcome to J-Life with Daniel. I'm your host, Rabbi Daniel Levine. Okay, well, we're here after two and a half days of nightmare as tragedy has struck Israel starting late Friday night over both Shabbat and the holiday of Shemini Atzeret slash Simchat Torah. I'm here with my friend and professor at UC Irvine, Alon Burstein, who researches terrorism for a living, especially vis-a-vis the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, to help us get all of the latest updates and help us paint some of the background. In the last two days, I'm probably not alone as somebody who is a leader of a Jewish community from hearing from literally hundreds of people trying to make sense of everything that happened from both the big picture background and also the hour-by-hour updates as, of course, there are rumors and unsubstantiated claims circulating on social media. So, alone, thank you so much for uh, this last-minute podcast. Daniel, thanks for having me on this um, sad beginning of the week. Yeah, and I really just want to start there. The, really, the entire Jewish world is reeling. I mean, the, the Jewish world is small enough, and certainly Israeli society is small enough, that quite literally everybody in the community is directly affected by this in terms of knowing somebody who is either still missing, somebody who's been killed by the Hamas terrorists as they were able to breach the border on the Gaza Strip, somebody who perhaps knows somebody who was called up for reservist duty, as now Israel has mobilized, I believe the latest number was 300,000 reservists. And so these are people, just for listeners, that have already finished their mandatory service. And perhaps these people have are married, perhaps they have young children, they have professions, and they, of course, are completely pausing their entire life and being sent to this unknown military situation that perhaps will lead to a ground invasion, which I'm sure we'll get to. Um, so, Alon, thank you again. I'm, I'm sure this has also been a difficult time for, for you. In every way. Um, on, on a personal level, um, you know, beyond checking in with everyone, as someone who studies the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and has been doing so for years, it's you know, always difficult to, on the one hand, have an academic interest in something and sort of try to look at it objectively. On the other hand, you know, subjectively be deeply, deeply affected and influenced. So definitely complicated times. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm teaching my Jewish studies class at UC Irvine tomorrow morning, and I was thinking all weekend of how to frame this for the 45 or so students that, you know, half of them come from Jewish or Israeli background and probably have been following the hour-by-hour updates and other people that probably, you know, maybe they got one news alert from New York Times over the weekend. And I think the way that I'm thinking of framing it is that when you're studying the humanities as either an academic or a educator, quite literally, it means that you are talking about humans. And it's almost impossible to separate the purely academic interest from the effect that this actually has on humans. And I think that something like this is certainly the, the headway where I think I, I told you and you were actually the first person that I saw after the uh, news broke. I actually found out at uh, Alone's apartment at about 8 a.m. on Shabbat morning as I walked over to uh, go on a walk with him. And one of the first things that, that I said was, I don't know whether or not to sit in a room and cry for the next two days or sit in a room and read military analysis after analysis for the next two days. And, you know, it's still this, you know, quite liminal feeling of both, of course, you know, wallowing in the tragedy and sorrow, and there's still so much we don't know and praying. And on the other hand, just the purely, you know, academic background of this, of what the heck happened and how could Israel, a nation that is quite literally world-renowned for its cybersecurity and defense and intelligence, how can there have been a misstep that's this extreme. Um, so thank you again for, for here to unpack everything. Let's, let's start from the very beginning. I'll just paint the listeners the briefest history for, for those that are quite literally have never heard of Gaza, Hamas, and Israel before. This is obviously not going to be a substantial background because I really want to get to the events of the current days. But the Gaza Strip before 1967 was a part of Egypt. During the Six-Day War, Israel took over the Gaza Strip and occupied it in terms of its military for the next 40 or so something years that also included many Israeli families moving down to the Gaza Strip. Then in 2005, Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, for a whole variety of reasons that are beyond the scope of this podcast, decided that he was going to pull out all Israeli Israeli military personnel from the Gaza Strip. He was going to quite literally forcibly remove Israeli families who were living down in the Gaza Strip and give it over to the PLO to do with it as they please. Um, About a year, a year and a half later, Hamas, which is an international terrorist group, which I'll ask you about in a second, ends up winning the elections, taking over, and 
this is the last time that there were ever elections in Gaza because Hamas initially quite literally killed or threw out all political opposition. But then every couple of years since then, Hamas has been known to send constant barrages of rocket fire that's led to a couple of notable wars, usually over the summer. But this seems bigger and different. So starting, starting with Hamas at a, at a very basic level, for somebody that's never heard of Hamas and they just see that word being painted all over media, who is Hamas, what do they want, and why are they doing what they're doing? So the, the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which is very, very complex, and I'll say here that if anyone wants a more detailed history of the history of the Gaza Strip, feel free to go to my YouTube channel. There is an entire talk, it's 45 minutes, and goes into the nuts and bolts of the history of Gaza and Israel's occupation and then Hamas takeover. We'll, we'll um, link to that in the comments afterwards. Um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict initially was a nationalist conflict. It was a conflict between Jews and Arabs. Um, it started as the Israeli-Arab conflict, but we focus on the Palestinians. It was a conflict between Israel and Palestinians over the future of Israel, the future of Palestine. Hamas comes up in 1988 and starts to repaint the picture. Hamas is an Islamist Palestinian group and they view all of historic Palestine as an Islamic endowment and they want to liberate it in the name of Islamic liberation. That is the reason that they are violently opposed to any recognition or negotiation with Israel. And that is the reason that they are different than the PLO. They have an entirely different vision and entirely different aspirations. They took over the Gaza Strip in 2007 violently and since then Israel has maintained a siege and Egypt on the other side has maintained a siege of the Gaza Strip and there have been these flare-ups, I'm just speeding us up today, there have been these flare-ups every few years. They have typically been in the form of Hamas firing barrages of missiles and rockets into Israel, and Israel retaliating either with bombs from the air or ground invasions. This is the first time in the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that a militant organization, not a state, but an organization, has managed quite literally to invade the country, invade Israel, blow up the a sort of impregnable fortress that Israel had built around the Gaza Strip and simply walls through. So we'll talk about the nitty-gritty of how that happened, but that's what makes this time unique. In addition to the 3,000 to 5,000 missiles and rockets that were sent, is this ground invasion that Hamas managed to mount amazingly successfully into the state of Israel. Yeah, so just to go for some hard data, and then again, we'll have a little unpack some of the analysis and reasons why. As of this morning, we're recording on early Monday morning here, so I'm sure that the numbers will change and go up. There are 700 Israelis confirmed dead. Of those 700 Israelis, a plurality includes civilians, including 250 or 260 young high schooler or college age kids who were partying in a desert at a late night rave who were mercilessly butchered by Hamas. There are over 200 and, sorry, 2,500 Israelis injured, and as of the latest data, we know that there's about 130, 140 Israelis who are kidnapped and currently being held in Gaza by either Hamas or um, Islamic Jihad, one of Hamas's co-terrorist groups that, that are in the Gaza Strip. Let's start with just what happened Friday night. A lot of, you know, this is obviously going to be the subject matter of thousands upon thousands of PhD dissertations and books in the coming years. Many people, many people are... Uh, comparing this to the Yom Kippur War, which happened eerily on the 50th, and this was the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. And that was probably the most notable time in Israeli history where all intelligence failed. And just for, you know, this isn't obviously a podcast on the Yom Kippur War, but what had happened in the uptick to the Yom Kippur War is Israel felt strong and untouchable, especially after the wake of the 1967 war. And the country was quite literally caught surprised. There were some warning signs that they failed to pay attention to. And all of a sudden, you have Egypt and Syria that are able to breach through the border and march. The IDF, within a couple of days or weeks, was able to push back the onslaught. And this was also far away from civilian population centers. What seems different about this time, one, is that, as you said before, this was not a country. This was a lone terrorist group that doesn't have the let's say, national backing of, of any country, although we're going to talk about Iran in a few minutes, but also the fighting was quite literally in villages and kibbutzim and, and police stations and army bases that were happening there. Do you think that this was just a malfunctioning of intelligence? Was this Israel being too cocky? Was Israel perhaps too internally preoccupied about the judicial reform protests? Or is this something more sinister? Do you think this could be an Iranian spyware attack that shut down intelligence or 
something even more like some conspiracy happening on the inside? I mean, what are, what are you thinking right now? I think a combination of many of the things you said. Um, there are initial reports that Iran may have been involved in infiltrating, at least with some spy software um, or something like that, and tampering with Israeli intelligence. Um, I can assure you that there is no hard evidence of that because if there was, the Netanyahu government would be screaming it because they are very fast looking for who's to blame that's not the Netanyahu government. They are already saying, we believe it's Iran with absolutely no evidence, at least that's being presented, because that makes it a big bad that's not their colossal failure. The failure of intelligence is something that is going to be studied for many, many years. There are also reports that Egypt sent warnings to Israel two weeks ago and one week ago saying something big is coming from Gaza, but Israel didn't care because it was more preoccupied in the West Bank in allowing Smotrich to set up all kinds of settlements and the Jewish power party to set up sukkahs in the heart of Palestinian territory. So there's a lot of speculation about that. What, is, what happened, the fact that happened, is Saturday morning at 6.50 in the morning, Hamas launched this combined attack. It began very, very intelligently. It began by using drones and taking out these guard towers that are, that are the surveillance around the Gaza Strip. They then sent a first wave in to storm the different outposts around the Gaza Strip. And how they were able to infiltrate these outposts is also going to be a measure of discussion. Even without these guard towers, outposts are supposed to be men and well defended. They managed to overrun some of them, and particularly the one that's called Ugdat Azza, the one that controls the Gaza Strip from afar. They managed to overrun them, and that really tampered then with Israeli communications and with Israeli intelligence. And then they detonated 15 different areas around this fortified fence, and they had planted bombs along the Palestinian Islamic Jihad for several weeks in advance. How did they do that? Another subject. How did they manage to do that? They planted these bombs. And then they sent a first wave through in order to start raiding Israeli towns. One of the things that I will say as an anecdote, some of the Hamas operatives that have already been captured and interrogated have said they couldn't believe that the Israeli army wasn't waiting for them. They planned this strategically in several different waves from several different places because they were sure this is the undefeatable Israeli army. They were sure that the army is going to be waiting for them. The army was not waiting for them. And then they did something also very intelligent which is they went through storming these different kibbutzim and towns and villages, and they did not focus on a specific area. They sent over a thousand people through with motorbikes and with cars, but they went to a specific town, shot it up, and then moved on to another town, shot it up and moved on, moved on to another town, shot it up and moved up. So what was happening is the Israeli police, Israeli military, were getting alarms going off in every single town, every single locale. They had no idea where to go. And then the Hamas mill then started to do three things. They started to slaughter everyone they saw, including entire families in some cases, going house by house. They barricaded themselves in some areas in order to actually draw military and police to there. And at the same time, they started kidnapping, as we said, between 100 to 130 people, loading them onto trucks, loading them onto motorbikes, and just mobilizing them back to Gaza. Uh, the range of those kidnapped is... Unbelievable. And some of the, we're talking elderly people. There are photographs of an 85 year old woman. We're talking about there are women that were taken with two babies yeah. that, that were taken to Gaza. So the and all this was done, of course, under the cover of thousands of missiles that were being launched. So the failure on Israel's side is massive, but the intelligence failure is not just in preventing this, it's not knowing that Hamas has this capability, that Hamas is going to, be able to do, going to be able to do this. The operation, according to sources already, Hamas had been training for this operation for over a year. This is the Israeli army that has managed to carry out targeted assassinations, knowing which car has a specific person in what street, in what alley in Gaza, and somehow this was not known. This is going to be the subject of much research over the years. Yeah, no, it's absolutely horrifying. And just to, just to add to the picture, paint it a little more vivid because it's been interesting to see the split screen of what Israeli media is putting out and what American media is putting out, not in terms of the ideological viewpoints, we'll get to that in a little bit, but just in terms of the full vividness of the details where you have these you know, generalized headlines from CNN and the New York Times of 700 Israelis killed in an attack, whereas Israeli media is really going into exactly the extent of how horrific it was with, again, cases of, and just a trigger warning for anybody here who is uh, overly sensitive to um, 
to this, this imagery, you know, dead bodies that were mutilated, young girls who were raped, oftentimes dead bodies who were mutilated and then raped. I mean, these are, you know, high school age students here, you know, so Hamas going through and not just, again, trying to target soldiers in, a, in an act of war of saying, you know, okay, this is a nationalistic conflict, but really perpetuating the worst human rights violations that one could imagine. Um, you had mentioned something that I just wanted to highlight for the listeners, which was that in Hamas's wildest dreams, they wouldn't have been this successful. And as you said, Hamas obviously set up this multi-pronged attack to think that, okay, 19 out of 20 of our, you know, battalions are going to be stopped by the IDF who's waiting. You know, maybe we can have one battalion go through. Maybe we can kill five to 10 people and kidnap one person. And I think just for, for listeners who aren't familiar with both the size of Israel in terms of population and also the importance that Israel centers around every civilian or, or soldier who was kidnapped, 700 people dead in Israel is, I think, mathematically equivalent to about 25,000 people in America. So this is a scale that's 10 times the magnitude of 9-11, just in terms of sheer percentages of the populations. In terms of people being kidnapped, I mean, listeners might be familiar with Gilad Shalit, who was an Israeli soldier who was kidnapped and also held by Hamas for, for many, many years. And eventually, Israel was willing to trade a thousand Palestinian political prisoners for one person. So this is, you know, just the value that, that Israel gives to even one person who's kidnapped. And I remember, you know, really the last major, major, there had been some, you know, medium major um, Gaza-Israel flare-ups. But in 2014, over the summer, there were three boys who went missing and were also kidnapped into Gaza. And this basically shut down the entire country for two months in terms of the search to find these three boys. Now we're dealing with a magnitude of times times 50 of all of that. So just from a society you know, perspective, I mean, where, where, is, where is Israel right now in terms of the feeling? Do you think, you know, how is Israel society going to respond? I mean, this is going to be the inflection point for the 21st century in Israel. I mean, our, our great-grandchildren, when they're learning about Israel, are going to be hearing about this and the 30 or 40 years of aftermath, similar to the way that me and you grew up learning about the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War and how that changed Israel. But what are you hearing from friends and family? And ju- just to note, generally when, you know, when, when, when we do podcasts, you know, our, our phones are away and our computers are away and we're just recording, but I notice every uh, 45 seconds you're checking your phone for updates because... Of course, you're probably still getting messages from your family and friends that are in Israel along with news updates. I think as of an hour ago, there were a barrage of rockets hitting Jerusalem. So what are you hearing from you know, family, friends on the ground in terms of how are people doing? So the, there's a lot of questions there, <laughs> a lot of issues. Um, I'll start by saying that people on the ground, it depends obviously where you are in the country, like people down south. And now starting, the reason I was checking my phone actually is because two hours ago there was signs that there may be, inf- there may be flare-up going on from southern Lebanon in the north of Israel. That seems to have been curtailed for the time being. Hezbollah still remembers the second Lebanon war, and even though they have pledged all their support for Hamas, there was now a couple of rockets fired, and Hezbollah was very quick to say, it wasn't us, it wasn't us, it wasn't us. So even though they are pledging support and they may go into the fray, they're not ready to do that right now. Um... In Israel, there's, first of all, a state of shock, much like there was again after the outbreak of the Yom Kippur War, because, something mentioned before, the hubris. It was always seemed to people in Israel that Hamas is just this stupid organization. They are much more interested. They're money-grubbing. They, are, they just want to control their population, etc., etc. And that's mostly how the political establishment tried to look at it also. Hamas can be bought off with money. The Trump administration had the deal of the century. We'll just give them money. Netanyahu administration let Qatar pay Hamas in order to just give them money. And that this will just quell Hamas. Those of us who have been studying Hamas for many years have been screaming, that's not the case. Hamas is an ideologically committed organization. They are going to buy their time and try to do everything they're going to do. None of us predicted that they would be able so successfully to do something like this. But in that sense, there's a state of shock going through Israel, let alone the state of fear all of a sudden. This is going to be a game changer because what has been until now in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, just in, in a practical way, I'm not even talking about the perceptional way, in a practical way, cannot continue. There has been absolutely no change in the state of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, let's put it that way, since 2007. We're talking about 16 years. 
And that's a long time. We're talking about a conflict that if we go just to 1967, let's say, when it was le- since then it was maybe less an Israeli-Arab conflict and more an Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So we're talking about 50 years, and the last 16 years has been absolutely no change. Israel has developed more settlements on the ground. There have equally been... Sorry, Israel has developed more settlements on the ground. There have equally been, um, you know, changes in developments in terms of Hamas capabilities, but there's been no geopolitical change because the assumption in Israel has been that as long as it prefers the status quo, no one can challenge it. So the status quo has been Israel besieges Gaza. Every now and then, there's a flare-up, and Israel can can contain it, curtail it, and that's just fine. In the West Bank, there's a mishmash of different regimes between the Palestinian Authority and Israeli army, and every now and then there's a flare-up, and it's just fine. That can't go on. The border with Gaza was known in Israel as the most impregnable border. It cannot be breached. Hamas did that in an hour. When we look at the sheer outcome right now, let alone what's coming, of the casualties and what has happened in Israel throughout the entire Second Intifada, we're talking about five years, and probably all of our listeners remember hearing suicide attacks going on, hearing shootings in the streets, etc. Throughout that entire five years, 1,065 Israelis were killed. Here, we're talking about 700, and the numbers are talking about likely to escalate more to like 900 Israelis killed within 10 hours. At the same time, if we compare it, let's say, to the Six-Day War, throughout the entire Six-Day War, 800 Israelis were killed. We've already surpassed that in terms of what we're getting reports on the ground. Not official reports, but reports. So the perception in Israel that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, now it's about just managing the conflict. It's about just keeping everyone at bay. Hamas has proven that's not going to be the case. And even if you now, the cabinet has now promised, the Israeli cabinet, they're going to pound Hamas to the ground such that they'll remember that. One of the interesting YouTube videos that came up has been Netanyahu over the last 10, 12 years promising that in 2009 and in 2013 and in 2014 and in 2018 and 19 each time we are now going to pummel Hamas to the way that they will know they can't mess with us. So clearly... The extent of trauma that's going to go through Israel is not just about the perceptions, it's the facts on the ground. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not going to be the same. What's going to happen? We can speculate. But this is going to be the game changer in that sense, in my opinion. Yeah, and, you know, so it seems like we've moved on to the sort of political analysis, which I think is good. It's where I wanted to to get to. No, 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 it's, it's great. I mean, I think... You know, for a lot of listeners, a lot of people have been reaching out to me just having no clue, you know, about anything that's happening in terms of the germane background and present and where we might go in the future. So I really definitely wanted to address that here. To some extent, Israel has been in a catch-22 in terms of the territories that, you know, border it or that its military occupies. I'm talking both the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Um, For listeners who are looking for further reading, Micha Goodman put out a fascinating book called Catch-67. He also wrote a series of articles for The Atlantic that I think were, were quite interesting in terms of the shift of Israeli policy and also just sort of this paradox that Israel's in, in terms of exactly what you're seeing with what happened with Gaza, right? If Israel keeps its military and keeps its civilian population in either Gaza or the West Bank, that is quite, quite understandably looked at by the international community as unjust, right? You know, listeners might have heard the term occupation, right? You're creating a de facto situation on the ground where there's two different legal systems for Israelis and Palestinians, right? As as is what's happening in certain areas of the West Bank, right? Most people can look at that and say, that is not good. On the other hand, if Israel subsequently pulls out its military and creates a power vacuum, right? From everything we know about the Middle East in the last 15 years, power vacuums in the Middle East generally do not end with nice, peaceful, liberal democracies. Every time there's been a power vacuum in the Middle East in the last 10 to 15 years, the force that left has been replaced by a more nefarious force, right? You know, to say nothing about all the specific examples, but I'm sure listeners can think of a couple of of recent relevant examples here. And so if Israel stays in, it's some sort of act of political and social and ethical unjust. If Israel pulls out, they're quite literally setting up the stage for a Hamas-like entity to fill that power vacuum. And so there, there, there really is this sort of paradox that I think Israel is, is enveloped in. And obviously the, the Israeli policy from both the West Bank and Gaza has been very different in the last 20 years, right? Obviously the West Bank, Israel's military is still engaged on the day-to-day, whereas Gaza, there was just a 
blockade that, by the way, it's important for listeners to know, Egypt also blockades Gaza. So mm-hmm. whenever people start talking about how Israel is, you know, enforcing this open-air prison state of Gaza, right, it, it's only half true because Egypt is also doing it. So this is clearly not just a, you know, oh, Israel hates the Palestinians type action, right, unless we say that Egypt also hates, you know, Arabs and Muslims and the Palestinians, right? So we can, you know, that's, that's for later to unpack. Moving forward, it seems that Israel is amassing troops on the southern border. I know that my cousin, I know that a lot of friends of mine, I know that a lot of children of friends of mine have been called down from, for reserve duty. And it seems that Israel is going to have no political choice but to actually invade Gaza, both in terms of looking for, again, these 130 Israelis that, have been, that are being held captive, and also just in terms of, again, changing the status quo. It seems like Israel, this is finally the last straw for Hamas, as you reiterated before, but I think I want to just highlight it again. The Israeli government for the past 15 years or so has been very content keeping Hamas in power. Hamas, with all of their ills and evils, and, you know, of course, I, I, I don't need to give my uh, anti-Hamas credentials from the point of view of real politic and especially the hard right government in Israel and Bibi Netanyahu, Hamas, of course, is not their best friends, but Hamas to some extent is a stabilizing force. Hamas also gives Israel and, and Bibi, and correct me if you disagree here, this sort of social and, and moral international check of saying, well, of course we're blockading this area, and of course we have no long-term solution. Look who runs it. It's these despotic terrorists. Just read their charter right there, you know, rolling out the you know, greatest hits of 19th and 20th century anti-Semitism. Of course we don't have a partner for peace. All of a sudden, it does seem like something's going to need to change, whether that is a reoccupation of the Gaza Strip, you know, who knows what's going to happen with the between two and three million Palestinians that live there, but it seems like there's going to have to be some major political change that's going to happen here. I'm curious if you have any thoughts or, or predictions. I know it's probably never smart to give a political or military predictions here, but it seems like this is going to have to be more than just the carpet bombing of Gaza, of which we've seen over the last couple of days. So I'll say, first of all, that when looking at the description of you know the Cash 22 or Cash 67 that Israel is um, engulfed in, it's not just a question of if Israel occupies or reoccupies the Gaza Strip as it does the West Bank and puts up settlements, it looks bad. That's not just, the, that's not the question. The fact is that first of all... Well, I'm not saying that it looks bad. I'm saying that it is, it is bad. But looking at then it's criticized internationally and then, and then all these things, I, beyond the moral, right, which, you know, that's already becomes a political question. Do we think that, you know, everyone should have equal rights or not that each listener can decide on their own? But beyond that, simply from an from egotistical Israeli point of view, the occupation means dead soldiers. The occupation means that you have, when Israel was in what is, what's called the direct occupation period from 1967 to 1993, that meant that there was a soldier stationed on every street in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. There were soldiers. There was no such thing as a police. There was no such thing as an administration. Everything was run by the military. And that means also that there's within this framework that movements like Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad take hold because anywhere there is internationally in the world where there's such an occupation, more violence develops. When more violence develops, soldiers are killed. So the, the catch-22 is not just what will, what, what will be better, let's say, also internationally and also for the Palestinians. Actually, from the Israeli point of view, you know, when people now are calling for retribution, reoccupy Gaza... I'm telling them, maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong. That means probably at least four to 500 dead Israeli soldiers. Maybe that's what has to happen. That's what happens in wars. Okay? But it just, it's something that has to be considered when people say, no, the solution is a simple solution of X or Y. Yeah, no, of course. And, 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 and it is worth mentioning that the Israeli prime minister to actually disengage from Gaza was not a left-winger. He was, uh, you know, Ariel Sharon was a man the of father The father figure of the settlements. Exactly, right? He was a man of the right. He was the uh, great man of Likud post-Menachem um, post, uh, Begin. And, you know, so he, he, he definitely had no love for the, you know, Palestinians that were on the other side. But this was, again, probably mostly pragmatic calculation of both the safety of soldiers and also just wider questions of population and citizenship that are, you know, again, beyond the scope of this podcast, but reach out to either of us if you want to uh, delve, delve more into that. But, but I will just go back to what you're saying. So uh, what can happen, and that's really 
the question that the Israeli government has had no answer to. You know, the left wing in Israel, and what's called you know, the pro-peace camp, the dovish camp, has been destroyed. It was destroyed because of what happened during the Oslo years, and then the second Intifada breaks out, and then after the disengagement from Gaza, Hamas comes up. The left, so to speak, and I say so to speak because, you know, the le- often now Benny Gantz, you know, Israel's chief of, former chief of staff, along with Gidon Saar, very right-wing people, are dubbed the left. So the center-left, whatever we want to call it, the not Netanyahu and his current government camp, have very little to sell in terms of, if you give us the power, we can make peace. There, there, there is no other side really to make peace with at this moment. The right has always sold, if you give us the power, then we will punish the Palestinians accordingly with every terror attack, and they will get it. Right now, Hamas has proven very, very loudly, we do not get it. We are not so, there's a lot of calls in Israel, we'll punish them further. Right now, the siege, Netanyahu announced very, very publicly, look at us, we're now punishing them. The siege now includes, we're not going to allow fuel, electricity, water, or food to come into Gaza. Okay, I personally, when I look at this, and again, never mind the moral questions with that, that each person is to their own, I say as someone who studied terrorism over the past, over the past years, that doesn't work. There's been attempts to do that in Colombia and in Argentina, in India and Jammu and Kashmir, in Turkey, in Libya. There's been, there been lots of attempts to say we will just punish the, the terrorists enough so that they will stop trying to terrorize us. That has never worked. So what... Well, I think, I think just, to, just to cut you off there, I think both, both sides, and I think you're seeing this also with a lot of lefty activists in the West, which I'm going to talk about in a second, that think that ideology necessarily gives way to some materialistic concern. And so you, you see this, you know, probably in what you're describing as a de facto policy of Israel is if conditions are bad enough for the Palestinians or on the flip side, when talking about the Trump peace plan from two or three years ago, if we just pay them enough, then they'll leave, right? If we either withhold material or throw material at them, we can convince them that their ideological beliefs are not important, right? This is a overly reductionist view of the world. Usually it's associated with Marxist and, and leftists, you know, although Israel and, and Trump have also, you know, implicitly put forth that view. You're also seeing this a lot on the left. I mean, the number of social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram and, you know, people, you know, in, again, more academic-y centric communities of which, you know, I'm sure many of us are um, following, have been saying something to the extent of, if you think that Israel and Zionism is an act of continuous settler colonialism, which just for the record, I do not, but if you do, if you accept that premise, well, all the Palestinians or Hamas or PLO or whoever have to do is make conditions just bad enough for Israel, and all of a sudden they'll leave where they're going to go, right? That's a question for, I, I don't know, right? They, they have to still figure that out internally. But they are lauding, lauding this and touting this as some great victory in the uprising against tyranny because, oh, now that 700 Israelis were killed in this horrific way, oh, now, now Israel is going to pack up and, you know, return to, to wherever. I don't know if they're thinking Poland or Ukraine or, you know, I don't, I don't know where exactly they think that uh, end destination is in their mind. But, but I think, you know, as, as somebody, and I would, I would guess you agree with this, as somebody who researches quite literally groups with some of the strongest ideal, ideologies in the world, right, ideas matter. And ideas are not secondary to materialistic or financial concerns, right? Obviously, that's important too, right? Money also has a huge role in international politics. But if a group like Hamas says in their charter, our goal is to kill every Jew from the river to the sea based off of our understanding of both international politics and also one of the more radical ways to interpret the Quran and the Hadiths, it makes sense to treat that seriously and not think, oh, no, they're just saying that. They're just really upset because Israel's been, you know, cruel to Palestinians, right? We have to take ideology seriously. And it seems that, that not a lot of people on every side of this conflict are actually willing to confront these strong ideologies and what they're actually saying and what they're, what they're actually trying to accomplish. I'm curious to just throw it back to you. I'm sure you have strong opinions about what I just said. Well, yeah, this is something that I won't say that you learned from me, but it's something I've been, I've been telling you and researching and looking at terrorism for a long time now. That ultimately, when I get asked a lot, why do I study manifestos of, of terror groups? They're just rhetoric. I'm like, because they're just rhetoric that says explicitly what these groups are going to do. They're rhetoric that just says what these groups are going to do, what they believe in. And if you look at their actions and how they follow through, it tends to happen. And again, I mean, these are abstract examples, maybe for some Americans. But, you know, 
wouldn't you know, when you look at what the Mujahideen were saying in the war in Afghanistan that the United States was supporting in the 1980s against the Soviet Union, if you look at what they were saying on the ground, they were saying, we are going to turn these weapons to the West when we have the opportunity. If you look at what the... So if people were to just listen to what people, to what they say, then you would understand that you cannot just buy off these groups. Now, that's not to say these groups don't have political context considerations. Like I said, Hezbollah, even though their charter also talks about liberating all of, not necessarily Palestine, their charter talks more about Lebanon and the Middle East, but their primary enemy is, in this case, Israel, they are nonetheless concerned with internal Lebanese politics. The Lebanese army and the Lebanese people have begged Hezbollah as a result of 2006, do not, do not do this. Hezbollah, as far as they're concerned, would be happy to go into the fray, but they have other considerations. Similarly, Hamas has agreed to cease fires in the past. But what we've shown here, and this is why I said that the situation cannot continue or will not continue as it was, because of the belief that they won't burn down everything in order to achieve what they want, Yahya Sinwar, the leader of Hamas in the Gaza Strip, was released from jail in the previous prisoner swap in 2011. And when he got to the Strip, the first thing he said, as he was made leader of Hamas in Gaza, is, I will not forget the prisoners, I will release every, every last one. Now, is that what's going to happen? I will say, I have my doubts, mostly because the current Israeli government will not be able to withstand. It will, it will fall long before they release all Palestinian prisoners. There's now talk that Qatar is trying to negotiate the release of the women and children that have been kidnapped in exchange for the release of Palestinian women and minors in Israeli jails. You know, so that something like that may happen, but obviously the majority of Palestinians in Israeli jails are young to old men, depending how long they have been in jail. So... That is not, there are 8,000, 9,000, maybe even 10,000 by now, Palestinians that are in prison in Israel, they are unlikely to all be released. So what is going to happen? Again, Hamas also can be practical, but they can be practical tactically. No, of course. I'm not saying, you know, of course, and I don't think you think that I think this. They're not just motivated by blind ideological, you know, rage and running around, you know, cutting people's heads off without any political consideration. But on the other hand, they are motivated by blind ideological rage that at times pushes against materialistic or, or real politic concerns. As an overall strategy, yes. exactly. And, that, and that's where often Israel has thought we can just buy them off. And, you know, as you, as you mentioned, I mean, the right-wing government has been explicit about this. But Salah Smotrich, who is not only Minister of Finance, he is the minister in the security establishment in charge of settlements, in charge of the civil administration, he has said in the past openly, that as far as I'm concerned, Hamas is an asset. Hamas is an asset no, because it I'm... proves to, uh, this is recording, this is recording this, because it proves to the Israeli population that there is no sense in a Palestinian state. So Hamas is an asset as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, we, we re- I, I recall probably a, exactly a year ago, maybe a little bit less, my timeline's a little bit fuzzy, recording a podcast with you after the elections about Itamar Ben-Gavir and Bitsal mm-hmm. Smotrich. And the question was brought up that, I have a lot of friends and supporters of the hard right in Israel because they think that it'll make Israel safer. And me and use both intuition, and listeners can go back and listen to this podcast, I think it was called Who is Itamar Ben-Gavir and Why is He Important? We both predicted that actually contrary to him making Israel safer would actually make security concerns even more grave. Uh, and so, you know, quite, quite obviously that's, that's what turned out to, to happen. Because again, you can't fight ideology with making conditions worse or better for people. You have to fight ideology with, with thoughtful solutions, right? Ideologies have to fight ideologies, right? It's very rare in, in world history that, you know, at, at least modern world history, right, post-World War II, that you have ideology that's able to be completely shut down and tempered by either rocket barrages or, you know, billions of dollars of payoff. The, I'll just add, looking at it again from the perspective of someone who studies, you know, terrorism comparatively, the only times that like, extremists, let's say, or absolutist ideologies, so those are different, let's say, from the PLO or the IRA, like those who wanted to liberate land, but they also recognized, okay, maybe we can take part of land, ideologies that their bedrock, their core is an inability to compromise. The only time that those movements have lost is when they were challenged by other organizations and ideologies from within that population. So in other words, in this case, only if the PLO or Fatah 
or another Palestinian organization is brought into Gaza and able to take charge and say, we are going to govern and we're challenging Hamas's ideology because we're going to make conditions better for you and you'll see why that's better, that is the only way, at least comparatively historically in the world, that these groups that are very, very popular, Hamas has vast popularity in the Gaza Strip, these groups that are very, very popular end up being challenged, pummeling the population because they're supporting these groups. And again, if we even leave the moral question aside, just in terms of success, has never worked. Yeah. So that is one of the reasons, that, again, and I will say also in this particular case, the population has been pummeled. They've been pummeled in 2009 and in 2014, 2018, 2019, 2021. These have been major escalations between Israel and Hamas, and Israel's every time bombed Gaza from the sky, sometimes invaded ground, in order to say, to, to try to convince the people, it's not worth it for you. That's not going to work in this time again, unfortunately. Yeah, so we have about three or four minutes left, um, and then I think we'll probably end up recording another podcast in about a week or two once we, once we know more. I'll uh, give you a call and we'll make a plan. The, the last thing that I just wanted to, to focus on, and then I'm sure you'll have some, some last-minute thoughts, is just the sort of split screen in terms of, of activists. I mean, I was... I'm not usually shocked by, by displays of virulent anti-Israelism um, after spending, you know, I think by now it's been 12 or 13 years living on a college campus. You know, I'm a frequent user of social media, right? I like to pay attention with what people are saying. But the barrage of support for not just general Palestinian uprising, which, you know, on some theoretical, you know, level, I can understand why a left-wing social activist is, you know... Might, might might even, and of course this is not a normative, you know, position of mine, but might even say, you know, Hamas generally does good things. But the, the tacit and in some cases explicit support for what has happened, the butchering of 700 Israelis, you know, everything we've talked about in terms of the war crimes, the raping, the pillaging, the kidnapping of quite literally babies, is utterly shocking. I mean, is, you know, the, the sort of old you know, traditional Jew in me, you know, is, is conjuring up the 3,000 years of, of anti-Semitism. I had a good friend last night. She is, you know, American-Israeli. Um, we've been friends since childhood. She, she told me um, the first thing when, when she, uh, I answered the phone is she said, I've never understood how the Holocaust can happen until I look at what coworkers and friends of mine are posting on social media in terms of, of lauding what's happened. I, I also picked up the phone last night and called a good um, friend of mine who's very active in the Muslim and pro-Palestinian community. I'm not going to give names because I didn't uh, get permit. I, I didn't ask permission to, to give names. And I just said, you know, hey, what what are you hearing, right? Like, what's going on? What are your social circles? Um, and and he explained, you know, that yes, everybody that he knows is basically, you know, happy <laughs> to to some extent. And there are you know rallies for for Palestinian you know, everything happening, you know, some of that maybe is because of the the bombings that have happened and are going to increase, but but there is some level of, you know, applause from from not not just, you know, Palestinians on the ground that support Hamas, but just left wing social activists, you know, everywhere. And it's just it's just shocking. I mean, I don't know whether or not to say, you know, this is just the next iteration of you know, okay, you had Protocols of Elders of Zion, then you had the Nazis, and you had left-wing USSR Soviet anti-Semitism, and this is just, okay, you know, the latest update is, you know, I guess it's now okay and, and good to pillage and rape, you know, young Israeli girls. Is this just, you know, this just seems like the biggest breaking point of, of the left and social activism. And, and what I was telling my friend last night, you know, we had a great conversation for about half an hour, is... Anybody who thinks that this is going to help Palestinians cause whatsoever is, is just completely off. I mean, you have probably millions upon tens of millions of people who might be, you know, sympathetic to, to both sides, right? They think Palestinians have a, you know, a, a good claim. They think Israel's probably a little bit too harsh, right? And being very overly generalistic. But after seeing the images and the videos, right, this is going to give Israeli politicians and America, who's supporting Israel and other countries, material for the next 500 years, you know, if we're all still around by then, to do whatever they want. I mean, I, I think Israel might, might have the put, I mean, again, not a normative, uh, you know, opinion, but descriptive, you know, opinion. If Israel tomorrow quite literally took the two million Palestinians that were in the Gaza Strip and moved them to, to Jordan, you know, in, in buses, I actually think, you know, 
the majority of the Israeli public would, would not bat an eye. Whereas, you know, weeks or months ago, you had, you know, unprecedented protests coming out against, obviously, the judicial reforms a little bit different. But it seemed like something was breaking in Israeli society of the status quo is untenable, Israel's becoming increasingly right-wing, increasingly fascist, you know, in terms of Ben Gavir and Bitsal Smotrich, right, names we said before. And it just seems like this is such a backwards way to view what potential progress can look like. This isn't a question. I'm just flabbergasted. I, I don't know. I mean, again, you're also, you know, involved in, in, in lefty circles, both, you know, in, in Canada, in America, in Israel, you know, I've never asked you about Europe, but what are you hearing, right? Like, how, what, what, is the, what is the motivation behind this? I mean, I'm not involved in lefty circles. As you know, I actually hate social media. So I can't, I, I don't, I, you know, I don't know what people, why people say what they say on social media. You've tried to teach me to be more on social media. And I dare say you have failed rather yes. than me. Um, Perhaps, actually, the lack of being on social media from, no, from, from what I'm but, seeing from students is a success in this last couple of days. It's successful. But... Here's what I'll say that I think most often Jews um, and, I mean, Jews and Palestinians fail to understand. And that is that we who are very involved in the conflict have very, very clear views about what's morally right or wrong. And we don't understand how it could be that other people don't see, like you just said, this is obviously going to be bad for Palestinians in the long run. So how can you not see that? But we never think about the fact that we're just involved in the conflict and the vast majority of people who go out to protest are not involved in the conflict and they have no clue. And then we could say, well, then they shouldn't have an opinion. Well, I challenge everyone here. Does anyone here have an opinion on the war in Ukraine? Do you actually know? Does anyone actually know what the history of Ukraine and Russia is or the history of wars are? I happen to think that Russia is the big villain. No, but, but they, 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 just, they, just to, just, just yes. you know, listen, listen. I agree with you. Sorry for cutting you off. You know, it's, uh, you know, frequent. We, we actually try, uh, Alona and I talk a lot in our podcast. We specifically try not to cut each other off. If you catch the two of us having a uh, Shabbat lunch together, it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's, every, it's every two minutes. The majority of people in the West support Ukraine in general. But if there were reports of Ukrainian soldiers or militants going into Russian villages and pillaging and raping children... I think even within the people who support Ukraine, I support Ukraine. I don't know much about it, right? I, I don't think, you know, I would not go on a debate stage debating somebody who was anti-Ukraine because, I, you know, I don't know enough. But I would not laud that as a great victory for Ukrainian nationalism. That's where I think the analogy breaks down. But I'm not making the analogy. What I'm saying is ultimately most people who get their media news and have no clue what's going on in the conflict just decide this side is right this side is wrong just like we often just decide this side is right this side is wrong about lots of different conflicts am i justifying that no i study politics i think people should be more informed i think they should be more informed and i think that they should not have an opinion until they're informed at the same time when i talk to people who are now saying on the israeli side or jewish side well what has to happen is we have to go in and execute all palestinian prisoners i'm like okay and I was like, do you even know what, I mean, I, I challenge people, do you know what a Palestinian prisoner is? You called them political prisoners before. That's wrong. They're not political prisoners. These, but what's the difference between Palestinian prisoners and, and Palestinian Israelis that are in jails? In Israel, they're called security prisoners. Most people don't know the intricacies of the conflict, and yet they're willing to be very passionate about it. And in that sense, one thing that we also don't think about is we, you know, people who are Jewish or tend to support Israel from different, from different, uh, in different ways at least, would tend to see, for example, there are missiles launched from Gaza, Israel retaliates, and we say, often, this is Hamas's fault, if they didn't shoot missiles, there wouldn't be retaliations. Other people who are not informed, who are not looking at the news, what, what they see is, in the last rounds with Israel, there have been 800 to 1,200 to sometimes 1,800 Palestinians killed. Right now, we are shocked, rightly so, and what Hamas did. But there are already also 700 Palestinians killed on the other side, including 78 children. Whose fault is this? Hamas. It's Hamas's fault. But people who have no clue about the conflict, who have no understanding and no concept, I agree with you. They shouldn't be out protesting. They should be more informed. It is horrific when I see it. But at the same time, drilling for an explanation of how is it that most people end up being saying, like, sure, I'm on that side. To me, most of it is just blind ignorance. Uh I agree with you on the blind ignorance, and I also think that the nefarious nature of being 
of lauding the worst acts of what has happened as opposed to what I would say is if I dedicated my life to being a Palestinian activist. Honestly, props to um, Ilhan Omar because, you know, she, of course, has no love for Israel, right? Mm-hmm. The, uh, the, the, the congresswoman um, from Minnesota. And she, she published on Twitter, I think, yesterday or two days ago. Well, it's she published the day it happened. The, the day it happened. What is happening is absolutely horrific. And again, she's going to go back next week and continue her fight against Israel and, you know, Palestinian rights. And I, I, don't, I don't agree with most of her views, right? But she did what I think all Palestinian activists should be doing. One, just in terms of general ethics and morality, but also for their own credibility. I, I agree. mean, if, if you think you're fighting on the right side of ethics and morals, as, you know, Palestinian activists think they are, Whatever the truth of that claim is, let's put that aside. Clearly, what has happened is not, right? I agree. Moral and ethics. So, so no. It, it, I mean, you know, I'm not the only one frustrated. You know, but I've gotten you know dozens and dozens of you know messages and screenshots of social media. Um, I want to just say, you know, I you know, just like all of my my podcasts, if anybody does want to uh, follow up and talk, you can feel free to message me or email me on any and all um, social media platforms. Um, you know, my email is dlevine21 at gmail.com. If you want to talk about any aspect of this, I am more than happy to follow up with you. We'll probably do another episode sometime in the next two to three weeks once we actually know more in terms of concrete analysis of what happened. Um, but we are, of course, sitting here thinking about praying for and really just hoping that there is not more destruction and more casualties, and that, of course, all of the Israelis who are kidnapped and being held in Gaza are freed swiftly, and that everything that happens in terms of the next week, if there is a ground invasion, if there isn't, if there is more rockets launched from both sides to the other, that, of course, civilian casualties and also soldier casualties are kept to an absolute minimum. Um, Alon, thank you so much for um, this last-minute meeting. I know that you're obviously extremely busy and focused on, of, of course, talking to family and friends in Israel. Um, do you have any last words, thoughts, anything? The Thanks for having me. The situation is horrific. Um, honestly, again, this is going to be out there. The, bar, the way the Yom Kippur War is remembered, right, is, is this tragic event that, as you said, like, you know, kids grow up on in Israel. This is going to be an event that hopefully is going to be so unique. Hopefully it's not going to be something that ever repeats itself that is going to be remembered. But what's for sure is that it's unprecedented in the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, I will also say, people can feel free to reach out to me, or I will add, um, I publish a lot when there's these escalations. I publish a lot on Twitter, just updates, and on YouTube, I'm starting to put out a daily summary of what's happening. <coughs> Both cases, my handle is at Alon Burstein, so that's at A-L-O-N-B-U-R-S-T-E-I-N. Feel free to take a look there if you'd like to be more informed on just what's going on every day. Thank you so much, Ellen. Thanks.